Hi there. Welcome to today's St. Cross seminar. Uh, the title of my talk today is Waiver or Understanding, a Dilemma for Autonomists about Informed Consent. The thesis for which I'd like to argue today is that we should reject the requirement that understanding the standard disclosure is a necessary condition for valid informed consent. This is a conclusion that I've argued for before in previous work, but today I want to argue for the same old conclusion, as it were, with a completely different argument. Um, so just to give you a little preview, there will be uh, five sections in the talk. I'm going to start with a very brief background on uh, some elements of informed consent. Uh, and then I want to try to outline the core dilemma that's going to structure my discussion. And uh, I'll begin by doing that in a kind of abstract way. And then I want to sort of motivate or fill in the background to this dilemma a little bit by describing some stylized cases to give you the idea that the sort of presuppositions of the dilemma are plausible. And on that basis, I then want to argue two different kinds of things. Uh, on the one hand, which is my kind of primary argument, I want to argue that people who, as it were, believe in an autonomy justification for informed consent uh, have to accept a, a version of my conclusion, which is that they need uh, a new argument for a main piece of their position. Uh, and then finally, as a sort of secondary argument, I want to sort of pivot and address the same structure to everybody else, the people who don't begin by uh, believing that autonomy has this privileged position in the justification of informed consent, and to try to convince them or you that uh, the same conclusion should be uh, accepted that I tried to urge on the uh, believers in autonomy. Okay, so um, in very general uh, terms, there are two kind of different contexts, medical contexts, in which uh, it's common to talk about requirements of informed consent. One is the clinical context, and the other is the uh, context of doing research, particularly randomized clinical trials. Uh, in principle, my discussion uh, is general and applies across both contexts, but I'm going to develop it primarily in the context of research or in the context of clinical trials more specifically. Um, as you'll see, I'm going to understand uh, the requirement of informed consent as really being kind of composed or broken down into two primary duties, one related to disclosure and the other related to consent. Uh, I take it that that's pretty standard fare. Uh, more generally, you can see it's a common feature of analyses of informed consent in sort of medical or research contexts to uh, single out five elements or components, which I won't review in great detail, but I'm just taking it that the disclosure requirement and the understanding requirement are two of these sort of five standard features. Uh, and in a way, my concern is about how we should understand the relation between them uh, as part of the apparatus of informed consent. So the, the detail that really kind of uh, gives the special color to this 
uh, version of the argument in this apparatus is the focus I'm going to provide on the idea that it's possible for either patients or subjects to waive the duties that professionals have in relation to them to uh, obtain their informed consent and in particular to disclose uh, various bits of information to them before seeking to obtain their consent. Um, there's a reasonably good uh, discussion about this in a legal textbook by Jessica Baird and colleagues that primarily focuses on the clinical context and on the kind of common law background. Um, but I think it's a sort of reasonably accepted general feature uh, that in many jurisdictions there is this right to weigh some or all parts of the required disclosure. This is one context, there'll be a number of them, in which you know, I'd be actually quite interested to hear whether there are differences in this regard uh, between the UK jurisdiction and what you know, one may regard as standard truths in an American context that actually don't travel as well as some people might think. So uh, in a way, the kind of main point about this availability of the right or option to waive some part of the disclosure is that a subject uh, who waives all or part of the standard disclosure, at least in the kind of common case where the subject doesn't already independently understand exactly what's being reviewed in that disclosure, exercising their waiver basically guarantees that they will fail to understand the relevant parts of the disclosure. So it's not just that there's a right or an option available to waive, but that the consequence, the predictable consequence of exercising it is guaranteeing that the subject fails to understand uh, the disclosure. So on that basis, you can see the kind of basic parts of the dilemma that I want to work with. My main kind of overarching background claim is that in this context, it can't both be true that understanding the standard disclosure is a necessary condition of valid consent to join a randomized clinical trial, and also that there is a right, or if you want to say more specifically, a justified right to waive the disclosure. So I'm going to refer to these as we go along as the kind of left horn and the right horn of the dilemma. Uh, but the basic point is that given what the consequence of exercising the waiver is, it can't both be true that you're required to understand the disclosure, but you have a justified right to waive it. Um, if you like, you can kind of fine tune this a little bit by kind of taking advantage of the fact that the right to waive the disclosure may only operate over part of the disclosure, and also that the claim that understanding is necessary may only be strictly true for part of the disclosure. Uh, the fine-tuned version of the dilemma is just the scope of the understanding requirement and the scope of the right to waive can't operate with respect to the same part of the disclosure on pain of getting an inconsistency. Okay. This assumes in the background, which I am assuming, and which also sounds pretty reasonable to me, that uh, the existence and justification for a right to waive presupposes that exercising that right nevertheless leaves the subject or the prospective participant with the option of continuing on to agree to participate in the randomized clinical trial. 
So by saying there's a right to waive the disclosure, what I have in mind is there's a right to waive the disclosure, which includes exercising that right, but nevertheless hanging on to the option to participate in the clinical trial. Okay, if consenting to participate in a clinical trial is a necessary condition of participating, and if having valid consent is a necessary condition of consenting, and if understanding is a necessary condition of valid consent, you run into the basic problem of this dilemma. Okay, so that is the kind of abstract background of the argument, as you will. Before I proceed to the argument, I just want to sketch in some kind of uh, stylized cases, you might say, to give you the idea that it's actually reasonable, at least sometimes for some people in some context, for someone to want to do both of the two things that the arms of the dilemma address, namely to want both to be able to waive all or part of the disclosure, but nevertheless also to want to agree or to have the option of agreeing to participate in the relevant trial. Uh, in the abstract, you might think, well, who would want to put these two things together? That's kind of crazy. Uh, I want to try to suggest that actually, at least in some contexts, it's uh, a pretty reasonable pair of things to want to have the option to do together. Uh, and here I might say that uh, the second two of my stylized examples kind of draw on Carl Schneider's work in his old book, The Practice of Autonomy. Uh, in his book, he's developing a critique of something that he calls mandatory autonomy. Uh, there's a way in which both kind of in the abstract, but also in the use of these cases, uh, the critique or the argument that I want to develop is structurally similar to Schneider's, uh, the difference being that he's focusing on the case of uh, individuals who want to uh, get the information relevant to make a decision, to be properly informed, but then nevertheless to have the option of not making the decision themselves, letting someone else, uh, a family member or the doctor, make the decision for them. Whereas I'm interested in the sort of reverse scenario, someone who's not interested in having some or all of the relevant information, but nevertheless is interested in not only making the relevant decision, but making it affirmatively, that's to say, actually deciding that they want to participate in a trial. And a different difference, of course, is that his discussion and cases are primarily drawn from the clinical arena, whereas I say I'm orienting myself to uh, the research case, but the argument is actually pretty general. So the second and the third uh, cases I'm going to give you are variants of what Schneider calls his uh, divided self hypothesis. Okay, here's case A, you might say the basic sort of uh, generic case of this kind. It's a case of a person whose conception of what information is relevant or important to his or her decision differs in one or more ways from the conception that's been standardized in the uniform disclosure. Not only that, but the person is conscious, perhaps because she's aware of the uh, quite strong data on the ways in which information overload can lead to poor or bad or even self-defeating decisions, aware of the dangers of information overload and having a different set of preferences 
in terms of what's really important information relative to the standard conception, this person wants to kind of fine tune or tailor which information she receives and just not receive information that isn't relevant to her but runs the risk of landing her with information overload. So here's an example. Uh, it turns out, I can tell you already, that the main part of my slide is not that easy to see, so I apologize for that. So uh, Laura Beskow and Kevin Weinfurt, colleagues of mine at Duke, did a bunch of survey work kind of investigating people's uh, preferences for information in particular as part of uh, an informed consent for a biorepository study. Uh, and they, among other things, found some striking differences in the preferences as between kind of experts and lay people, in particular, uh, differences in the preferences as between IRB members, research ethics board members, and lay subjects concerning which parts of the standard disclosure were uh, important or relevant to include. So I'm just going to give you one example, and this is the bit I apologize you have trouble reading, I can tell you what it says. So the right to withdraw as a standard part of what's disclosed as part of an informed consent process was something that IRB members, 95% of them, rated this as extremely important, whereas only 58% of lay subjects reported this as an item that they thought was very important to know or to be told as part of the disclosure. So there's you know, roughly 40% um, difference between lay people and experts in the uh, importance of this particular item. Okay, case B, again, these are modeled on Schneider, remember, is a person, a patient subject who has a terminal condition, some particular randomized clinical trial offers them the last and only chance at an effective therapy. This is information that's both true and believed by the subject since the subject trusts her doctor. But the subject nevertheless fears that learning the details of the risk-benefit analysis for this trial will scare her off her kind of already made decision to enroll. So for her, waiving that part of the information in the disclosure is part of a Ulysses strategy in effect to kind of bind her to the choice that she's already made. Okay, a variant of this case has the same structure, only the difference is that now the person is not a terminal patient, but an altruistic volunteer who just doesn't care about the details of the trial. Their interest in participating has to do with their altruism, their desire to further science, and uh, you know the details of what exactly they're signing up for don't matter to that decision, but they do fear that learning about them, in particular learning about the risk-benefit details, will scare them off the decision to enroll. And so again, waiving that information is a kind of Ulysses strategy that they adopt. Okay, as a general thesis, you may say, you know, alarm bells go off when you're told that a particular altruistic volunteer doesn't care about the details of the trial they're enrolling for. But here I think we could add particular details, both about the trial and the individual, 
to make this a rational attitude. So of course, sometimes, you might say, in scary cases, for example, and in standard cases of individuals, the uh, attitude in question may be very questionable, but in many other cases, it may also be perfectly reasonable. Okay, as a general matter, the point is there may be perfectly good reason for the patient, the subject, to adopt the Ulysses strategy, and that's what would give her a reason to combine the waiver strategy with nevertheless wanting to enroll. Okay, so that is the basic setup uh, to the whole uh, argument. And now I'm going to give you these two different arguments, one pitched more specifically at people who believe in the importance of autonomy for justifying uh, informed consent, and then later I'll come back to a sort of variant of the argument uh, addressed to everybody else. So, again, this is the second point at which actually I'd be interested to hear if uh, my description of a part of the target is one that uh, fits better in the United States than it fits here. Uh, certainly, I think it's fair to say that in the United States, the standard default justification offered for the requirements of informed consent is an appeal to autonomy, uh, both, I would say, at, at the general level, that's to say that this is meant to be uh, the crucial part of the justification for the entire doctrine of informed consent in all its sort of multi-form details, uh, but also more specifically, it's meant to be uh, a crucial part of the justification for the very uh, requirement that I'm targeting in the discussion, namely the claim that understanding the required disclosure is a necessary condition of valid informed consent to participate in a trial. I'll add maybe that, you know, to my mind, it's actually quite hard to find a well-developed, uh, articulated example of such justifications, as opposed just to the claim or the assertion that autonomy plays this role in that justification. But for the purposes of a target and for this argument, that doesn't matter to me. What I'm going to try to show is that in a certain way, the conclusion can't be right, no matter kind of how you fill in uh, the background here. Okay, and the way I'm going to do that is by beginning not from the question, what's required, or is it possible to justify the requirement of understanding as a necessary condition, the left horn of the dilemma, but rather I want to focus on the right horn of the dilemma, uh, the question of the right to waive a part of the disclosure, or more specifically, in a way, the justified option to waive the disclosure. It's actually not important for my discussion whether we conceive of the option to waive the disclosure as something that properly qualifies as a right. Okay, And in particular, I want to say the argument should begin by asking, from the standpoint of autonomy, how does a justification for having the option to waive the disclosure fair. Okay, in general terms, what I want to argue or suggest is that uh, a justification for having the option to waive the disclosure is actually 
quite easy or straightforward to justify in relation or by reference to the value of autonomy. I want to give you two different examples of attempts to sketch in some such justification. So the first attempt focuses on the fact that using or exercising uh, the option to waive the standard or part of the standard disclosure is a straightforward exercise of autonomy. It's making a choice over the conditions of one's own life. More specifically, it's making a choice over the conditions of some particular decision that one uh, has to make uh, and making that choice over the conditions of that decision in particular uh, as a, an attempt to shape the conditions to bring them better into line with one's own kind of values and preferences. That description, uh, using the waiver as an exercise of autonomy, holds even if it turns out that a consequence of that decision is that some later choice one makes, for example, the choice to enroll in the trial, turns out to be less autonomous because, for example, it turns out to be less informed and on the assumption that you think information or informedness is a condition of autonomy. This all to the good just because it's perfectly coherent and possible uh, to decide autonomously to accept a limited loss of autonomy on some occasion in the future. And that's both true and coherent, even if one holds that there are limits to the extent to which one can autonomously decide to forego autonomy. So at the extreme, uh, it's a well-known position, for example, that uh, contracts to sell or bind oneself into slavery uh, not only uh, are void, but in particular can't be justified by reference to the value of autonomy. So one can accept that and even something weaker than that while still insisting that some choice to accept a limited loss of autonomy in the future is not only both possible, but remains itself an exercise of autonomy. Of course, uh, one might insist uh, in line with this position, uh, I take it the opponent will insist that as an autonomous choice, the choice to waive the disclosure or some part of the disclosure itself has to be made under certain conditions. And these conditions might well include understanding of relevant parts of information. Okay, so uh, I'm happy to accept that. That's consistent with the claim that it's both coherent and justified autonomously to decide to accept a later loss of autonomy in the future, as long as the information that's required for the first choice, the choice of the waiver to be autonomous, is different from the information that's required for the later choice, say the uh, choice to enroll in the trial is required. Uh, and on the face of it, I think that both looks uh, correct and perfectly sensible. So I'll come to an example in a minute, but more generally the argument is if those two sets of required bits of information overlap, then insisting that the uh, choice 
to waive the disclosure can only be made autonomously if it's informed in a way that actually will remove or obliterate the later choice is somewhat kind of incoherent. Okay. But in any case, I think we can just by example and description show that those two sets of information conditions are distinct. So for example, it may be that as part of deciding autonomously to waive the risk-benefit information for a particular randomized control trial one is considering joining, one has to be told that the trial does have a specific risk-benefit ratio, and if one waives that part of the disclosure, one will be ignorant of what that uh, ratio is. That's one kind of information, uh, and you may need to receive that information in order autonomously to waive the disclosure. Nevertheless, what's required you know, in the standard view to autonomously enroll in the trial itself is a different piece of information, namely the actual details of what the risk-benefit ratio for that trial uh, are. Okay, and so one can be given the information needed to make the waiver choice autonomous without yet being given the information that one is trying to avoid and that's meant to be required for the enrollment. Uh, so uh, these two pieces of the puzzle remain uh, coherently fittable together. Okay, that was one kind of way of trying to show how, from the standpoint of autonomy, uh, having the option to waive part of the disclosure is perfectly justifiable. Here's a second kind of differently formed attempt. If we're presented with some individual who, as it happens, wants and reports that he would like to waive the disclosure and nevertheless hang on to the option to enroll in the trial, if we deny this person, I guess I changed the person's gender in the middle, if we deny this person the option, that is tantamount to forcing her to receive the standard disclosure, at least forcing her to receive it on pain of losing the option to enroll in the randomized clinical trial. So a different way to put this second attempt is to notice that denying people the option to waive the disclosure in the case when they don't want to receive it is equivalent to forcing them to receive the disclosure. So it's one question whether it's possible to justify forcing someone to receive the standard disclosure. As we'll see, uh, I'm happy to leave that question open. My point here, this is the nub of the second attempt, is that forcing someone to receive the standard disclosure can't be justified in the name of autonomy, because this is uh, equivalent to uh, forcing her to decide under conditions that she rejects, which is not a, a description that's consistent with, as it were, the content of autonomy, let alone uh, its value. So here's where we go back to this phrase, mandatory autonomy, and I, I kind of overlap to some extent in my argument with Schneider's critique. So in this sense, uh, part of the point is, the idea of mandatory autonomy is a, a kind of contradiction in terms. And unless we can reconcile or, or rescue that contradiction, uh, that's an argument for saying that autonomy itself justifies not forcing people who 
want to waive the disclosure um, to have the option of waiving it. As I say, it's a separate question whether there's a different argument that appeals to something other than autonomy, a, a different value or a different set of considerations that yields the conclusion that actually it's justified, all things considered, to compel unwilling subjects to receive kind of required disclosures. Um, I'm happy to leave that open. The main point is just that case, whatever it is, would have to be based on something distinct from autonomy. So let me go back to the dilemma in my title. Recall uh, my suggestion is that the dilemma has the form of these two horns. On the one hand, uh, you can't have the idea or you can't affirm that understanding is necessary as a condition of valid consent to join a randomized controlled trial while also affirming that there's a justified right or option to waive the disclosure. Those two things are inconsistent, I claim, uh, and so they can't both be justified. What we've just seen, the conclusion of this first line of argument, is that there's a quite good, perfectly compelling justification that begins in the value of autonomy and ends as a conclusion on the right horn of the dilemma, namely the conclusion that there is a justified right to waive the disclosure. So if that's right and the two things are inconsistent, the conclusion that follows, and this is the main conclusion that I would like to uh, urge today, is that we cannot also appeal to autonomy to justify the conclusion that understanding is a necessary condition of valid consent. So this kind of run of the main argument has a very simple form. There are two propositions that are inconsistent. Autonomy yields a very good and straightforward justification for the second of these propositions. Therefore, autonomy can't also be uh, seen as the justification for the first of the propositions. Can't also be seen as the justification for holding understanding to be a necessary condition of informed consent. If, therefore, just spelling it out, uh, you are a believer in the value of autonomy and in particular in its relevance for uh, justifying some elements of the doctrine of informed consent, my conclusion is you, those uh, people in those camps, need to give up on the idea that autonomy is the way to justify the understanding requirement as a necessary condition. Again, I'm happy to leave open on this plane of the argument whether there's a different justification for this conclusion, I reject. But my main point is the autonomy-based justification can't be it. Last uh, little wrinkle on this uh, kind of autonomist-orientated part of the argument. So I, I referred at the beginning to this textbook by Jessica Baird and colleagues uh, this is going to be a, a perhaps funny use of the expression in fairness to, uh, but in fairness to them, and it's kind of a striking feature of their discussion, I think they recognize all of the main elements of this argument, namely that what I'm calling the right and left horns of my dilemma are two inconsistent propositions, 
that autonomy supports one of these two inconsistent uh, propositions, and also that it's possible uh, for the decision to waive to be a perfectly well-informed decision and therefore qualify for uh, the description autonomous. The only thing they don't do is draw the conclusion that I'm here urging us to draw, which is, therefore, autonomy doesn't offer, in fact, can't offer uh, a justification for the remaining proposition, which is the main proposition that they affirm and affirm on the basis of autonomy. Okay, so we've come uh, through uh, four-fifths of the structure and we've covered, as it were, the main uh, plank of the argument, which was meant to be addressed to believers in autonomy. Uh, nevertheless, I want also to kind of uh, complete the tour, as it were, of the audience, I want to address uh, a similar argument to those of you who may not believe, maybe never believed from the beginning, that autonomy was the key to justifying elements of the informed consent um, doctrine or, or set of uh, uh, duties. So I'm going to skip over this slide because it's really just saying what I, what I covered. I, I want to shift now to talk about the people who think that the basis for the justification of informed consent lies elsewhere. This second argument uh, is going to be anchored in the same material in the sense that uh, the thin end of the wedge I want to drive is just the observation that the right and left horns of this dilemma are inconsistent or that these two propositions about informed consent are inconsistent. Um, and I want to make the driver of the wedge again be an argument that having the option to waive parts of the disclosure is a perfectly justified option. Uh, it's just that I want that argument now to run forward on grounds that have nothing to do with autonomy. That's the difference between the bit that's addressed to autonomists and the bit that's addressed to other people. So the two kind of alternate drivers that I want to put forward uh, are quite different from each other. Uh, how different this first one is from autonomy, in effect, I think depends on how uh, precise or uh, detail-oriented you are in the formulation of what counts as autonomy. So the first driver just appeals to what I would call the value of ordinary individual choice, by which I mean nothing more kind of uh, elaborate than the value of letting people decide certain questions for themselves instead of making the outcome or decision be uh, mandatory on the basis of some regulation. And for my purposes, it doesn't really matter. I think there's a host of, you know, general considerations that speak in favor of ordinary individual choice, uh, starting with, you know, what I'm calling in the slide, the old million saw, which is just that people are the best judges of their own interests, or at least maybe slightly more uh, considered by and large, or for the most part, people are the best judges of their own interests. So the value of ordinary individual choice also favors having the option to waive the disclosure in informed consent. Here, uh, that's what I was alluding to at the beginning, 
I'm presupposing that we should distinguish autonomy and ordinary choice. In my terms, I'm kind of offering you a template for distinguishing them just on the basis of kind of logical strength or theoretical sophistication. So autonomy, I take it, is a more demanding, more theoretically elaborate notion. Ordinary choice is really just a kind of plain notion. It's got no sophistication in it whatsoever. It's kind of funny that in the literature, people don't actually distinguish in the details between these two options much at all, in the sense that they often use the language of autonomy. And when they come to spell out what they mean, actually what they're talking about is just ordinary choice. In a way, that's fine for me, because my point here is just we don't need any fancy theoretical apparatus to see that there's a, a, a value in ordinary choice in letting people choose what kind of information they receive or don't receive, and that just is the value in letting them have the right or the option to waive. Okay, I'm skipping lightly over that because I on the one hand, take it to be a kind of common sense notion, but on the other hand, I think the second argument, which is kind of manifestly different, is also quite compelling, and I want to turn to that now. So this is an argument from what you might call institutional or regulatory design. And the problem space in which it arises is a kind of familiar problem, which centers exactly on the sort of calibration or formulation of the duty to disclosure, the duty to disclose, rather, uh, which is the question of, uh, as a policy matter, what information should be singled out as the information that uh, physician investigators are duty-bound to provide as part of the informed consent process. Um, so in this debate, which uh, may be familiar to you already, the discussion typically proceeds in relation to three possible standards by which we decide what the uh, information required to be disclosed is going to be. One that's often called the professional practice standard, the second that's called the individual preference standard, and the third that's referred to by uh, means of this kind of mythical figure of the reasonable person. Uh, and again, in many American jurisdictions, anyway, as a matter of law, it's the reasonable person standard, which is ultimately enforced. And so part of the debate is just a question about what are the grounds for preferring the reasonable person standard to these other two standards as a matter of policy. So for my argument, the point to notice is that the reasonable person standard is in some sense a normalized version of the individual preference standard. It's normalized kind of in two different ways. One I'm calling uh, normalized by way of being standardized. It's just sort of made to be uh, kind of one rule to fit all cases for the sake of simplicity. And in effect, part of the main argument for the reasonable person standard is just it's kind of you know, administrative simplicity or non-complexity in application. Uh, in principle, you could also see a, a reasonable person standard as a normativized version of an individual preference standard, by which I mean that involves a certain amount of idealization on the individuals in front of you, 
uh, with respect to what their preferences are, as opposed to just taking the uh, rote kind of real world facts on the ground about what this person versus that person versus that person would prefer to know. Okay. Uh, in practice, I think the main kind of argument and ways of, of settling on which information is going to be disclosed operate by just appeal to the standardized sense of normalized. So the starting point of this argument is just to notice that in fact, typically as a matter of policy, uh, the choice of standard to fix the content of the required disclosure is the reasonable person standard and it's done primarily by appeal to uh, the considerations that favor standardizing the procedure, all the while acknowledging that in some kind of fairly clear sense, in principle, the individual person preference standard would be better. It's just that it's kind of unwieldy or impractical and so not worth kind of implementing at the level of general policy. Okay. What happens when you take the uh, reasonable person standard in preference to the individual preference standard while considering the individual preference standard in some sense to be uh, better or ideally the correct standard is that you introduce two different kinds of error. Okay, In principle, on the one hand, you can have too much information in your standardized disclosure relative to a given individual's preference. Or, of course, you could also have too little information in your standardized disclosure relative to a given individual's preference. And as anyone who has actually looked at some uh, informed consent forms uh, for research will know immediately, the overwhelming bias in the kind of application of the reasonable person standard is to kind of lean towards the first error, having too much information in the standardized disclosure. Second argument for the availability of a waiver option is just an argument that says adding the option to waive provides an obvious and simple corrective for the too much information error, i.e. the one that is by far the preponderant error, because it allows individuals to bring the information that they actually get under the standard policy largely back to what the individual preference standard would actually say in the first place, but does so without the practical defects of the individual preference standard. For example, burdening uh, physicians uh, and assistants with the job of trying to find out in advance all of what exactly it is that this individual and then the next time that individual would uh, prefer to learn. If you have a standardized kind of over generous disclosure up front, but the option for individuals to peel it back in parts, you in a sense get the best of both worlds. And that is itself a kind of administrative argument for the availability of the waiver option. So, like with the first plank of the argument for autonomists, of course, all of these considerations only operate pro tanto. I'm leaving it open that by appeal to some other kinds of considerations, you might have uh, a countervailing case for the option to waive. But at least other things being equal, both of the arguments put forward that are distinguishable from the consideration of autonomy also support the option to waive. So my conclusion is just 
both if you're an autonomist and if you're not an autonomist, there's a reason to uh, affirm or believe in the justifiability of the option to waive parts of the disclosure. Having that option is not consistent with insisting on the necessity of understanding the disclosure as a condition of valid informed consent, and therefore we should reject that proposition. Thank you very much.